Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm here with Randall Worley. Randall, as always, it's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, uh, we are going to continue on in our series dealing with um, LGBTQ and um, sexual issues in the church and how the church should look at this stuff. And right now we're going to talk in more detail just about, uh, well, really just the Bible and sexual laws and sexual rules. And so, uh, you know, Randall, we, uh, we initially find um, a lot of things set up for marriage in Genesis chapter one, where um, God uh, creates Adam and Eve and says the two shall become one and be joined together. Uh, and, and even um, uh, in Genesis one, there's this idea of a permanence to marriage or the, ideally there's a permanence to marriage um, so that you're making this sort of lifelong commitment to another person. Um, what are some of your initial thoughts on just the, I guess, the sanctity of marriage and what marriage should look like from a biblical perspective? Well, I think uh, if we look at the kind of the, the global picture in scripture, uh, I don't see a whole lot of variation, uh, even across Old and New Testament. There are other issues that I think we see a very clear shift, um, you know, like dietary laws, uh, mm-hmm. circumcision, you know, a lot of other things. But um, when it comes to marriage and sexuality, I, it seems like there's a, there's a uniform voice uh, across both the old and new covenants. Um, and in, in, in some ways, I think it's, it's remarkably simple and, uh, and it's not terribly complicated mm-hmm. uh, to understand how the Bible presents uh, God's intent for, for marriage and sexuality, marriage being this binding together of two lives into one. Um, and sex, I think biblically is not simply, um, a, uh, a mechanical necessity for procreation. I think the Bible celebrates sex as, uh, a binding force, uh, the binding together of two people and also, uh, gives it tremendous weight and importance, uh, perhaps in contrast to a lot of the way people talk about sex today. It's not Mm -hmm. treated biblically as a superficial, casual, or recreational activity, but as something profoundly spiritual uh, that binds people together. And because of that, I think uh, the Bible reserves it for marriage. Uh, In other words, it's not, it's something so profoundly significant and it impacts the two people involved so profoundly that uh, it's guarded by the, by the marriage commitment. Uh, you you uh, enter into an oath with another person, and that's what marriage is. It's not a piece of paper. It's, it's a sacred promise. You enter into an oath with another person that you are going to commit yourself to this person for the rest of your life, and, and they do the same to you, and that becomes the appropriate context for this most uh, intimate and significant uh, physical union of which we are capable. Yeah, that's um, interesting. I was and, listening and, to it. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, and uh, I guess uh, the only other question that's probably the burning question on people's minds today, I do believe the Bible indicates that marriage is, is intended to, uh, to be for uh, a man and a woman, uh, mm-hmm. a one-to-one. Um, and I, we, 
I, if you want to, we can chase rabbits about polygamy in the Bible. But uh, <laughs> I, I do think even though uh, the Bible uh, originates in a period in history where polygamy was uh, practiced and um, even the examples we have biblically of polygamy are, are a good argument against it. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're not happy families and they don't work well. And I think we have books like the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, I think, is, is a defense of monogamous relationships. You know, at the end, the conclusion is, you know, Solomon, you keep your thousand. I've got my one. Um, and in the New Testament, I think we, uh, we have encouragements to view marriage as, as intended to be one-on-one. Um, yeah. I think, uh, you know, in the law, it says the kings are not to have multiple wives. Then, of course, you see almost every instance of polygamy mentioned in Scripture is from people who aren't supposed to be having more than one wife. Uh, But then in the New Testament, uh, Paul and others uh, very clearly say, if you're going to be a pastor, you cannot be in polygamy. You have to have only one wife. And Mm -hmm. I've argued that one of the reasons for that is the more wives you have, the more your affections and attentions are divided and the less time you have to shepherd the people of God. Um, yeah. And I think it's true for the Kings as well. Uh, but I think it speaks to the uh, biblical uh, concept that it really is meant to be a monogamous thing, not a polygamous thing. And uh, right. you're right. Every, every instance of polygamy in the old Testament from the very first one in Genesis four, that talks about Cain's grandson yeah. is negative. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the text that we have show that polygamy happened, but it doesn't paint it in a pretty, you know, pretty light. And yeah. so, uh, I was, I was listening to a nun, uh, in a video the other day, and I, I thought it was really interesting. She was talking about how people in social media talk about sex and how, um, they talk about it in such a frivolous way, like it's no big deal. Uh, that that her point uh, her point was in our society we have uh, toned down the sacredness and the intimacy and the spirituality and the closeness and the and the and the beauty and the goodness of sex and and she was arguing for you know it's reserved for marriage but even in social media a lot of times the way that husbands and wives talk about sex to one another is um, so frivolous that it uh, it sort of takes away some of the um, importance and significance of it. So, yeah. uh, so yeah. I, I thought it was good that you brought that up as well. Um, you know, when we come to the sexual laws in Leviticus, uh, many of them have to do with, um, you know, um, I guess, if you, if you will, uh, you know, adultery. Uh, that's, that's sort of where the main focus goes, you know, don't have uh, relationships with uh, so-and-so's spouse, don't have relationships with this person, you know, related to you that belongs to this other person over here. So not blood relative necessarily, but, um, you know, someone related to someone else in your family, which again would be adulterous. And um, in the New Testament, you find adultery frowned upon uh, as well. I would argue that in our society, adultery is still frowned upon. I mean, people lose their jobs for having affairs um, and, and not just in churches. I mean, you know, uh, especially if you're in a position of leadership, you know, uh, if you're a political candidate and you've been having affairs, that affects your ability to serve in that capacity. If you're a school teacher and you have an affair, sometimes 
uh, that affects your ability to remain on at a school. Um, and especially if it's with someone else at the school. And in many cases, when people have affairs at a, at a job, it ends up uh, requiring both people to leave that particular job. Uh, so uh, it, it's very, and, and, you know, affairs do all kinds of damage on families and uh, especially on children and, and whatnot. Uh, so scripture seems to me to be very much opposed to um, just the idea of, uh, you know, entering into someone, a relationship with someone who is not the person you made this commitment to uh, when you married them. And so um, what are, um, from your perspective, I guess, what, what are some of the um, other things that you would say would be considered big ethical issues as far as sexuality is concerned uh, in, in scripture as it relates to, uh, you know, say just marriage and proper views on sexuality? Well, one of the things that really stands out to me as we read the Bible is that uh, sexuality is not treated as, uh, as a thing of minor importance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in our societies today, uh, it has been uh, devalued so much that it is considered uh, basically inconsequential. I think that maybe Um, sex has been devalued. I think sexuality or sexual identity, however, has been elevated. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, to the point where I think sometimes people want themselves to be defined more by their sexual preference than by everything else they do in life, which which I think is also sort of a a misunderstanding of of how our sexuality should be played out. But anyway, yeah, please continue. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I I mean, uh, the practice of sex has has been seen as as, uh, not a big deal. Um, Mm -hmm. But what strikes me is that uh, forbidden sexual unions in the Old Testament enter into the category of capital punishment. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that is how severe the issue is considered in terms of importance. I mean, that's right up there with cursing your parents or blaspheming God or, you know, I mean, there are only a, a handful of things in the law of Moses that were punishable by death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sexual sin enters that category. And to me, of course, given our sensibilities today, that sounds draconian. But what that tells me is that sex maybe is a lot more important than we think it is. And what we do affects not just ourselves, but society much more profoundly negatively than we, than we understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's the point of, uh, you know, in chapter 20 of Leviticus, where you get to the punishments for a lot of these uh, things that are forbidden, uh, many of them uh, are punishable by death. Um, I, I do. Uh, uh, and then when we get to the New Testament, uh, where, whereas we see a softening in the New Testament of a whole lot of other things, you know, dietary laws, it doesn't matter. It, they, they were illustrative of spiritual truths. Um, but, but come now that Christ has come, we understand the reality and have no more need for, for the symbol. Uh, the reality supersedes the symbol. So, uh, you know, all foods are declared clean uh, and we, 
we understand that differentiation, but we see no shift like that when it comes to the sexual laws. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a very, and what really is striking to me is how big a deal is made of it in the New Testament. It's in, well, I, I haven't stopped to actually confirm this, but it, I know it's in the majority of the epistles. Mm-hmm. It's front and center. I mean, it is repeated over and over. It's in the book of Acts. It's, I mean, yeah. the, the, uh, it's in the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, when, when God, one of the problems God has with many of the, the churches, the letters to the churches, is that they have fallen into sexual immorality. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, you think of Corinthians, that's one of the big issues in Corinthians. Yes. Uh, Paul brings it up over and over again, not only for behavior for those in the church, but also for qualifications for anyone in leadership in the church. And not yeah. just as pastors, but as, you know, deacons or elders or, you know, however else you yeah. choose to divide all that. Um, and, and in the gospels, you see it, you know, sexuality is brought up in every single one of the gospels. Um, uh-huh. uh, not just with the the woman caught in adultery brought to Jesus, but obviously hers is one of the, the stories that stands out. But Jesus's teachings on marriage and the Sermon on the Mount deal with it. Um, and to the point where he says, you know, look, in, in this society, you've made it so that guys can divorce their wives for whatever reason they want. And I'm telling you, unless she has been sexually unfaithful to him, he has no right to divorce her. And, and the reason I word it that way, of course, is because in the first century, men could divorce women and women could not divorce men. Right. Uh, in, uh, in the Jewish culture. So, yeah, uh, I'm not sure they could in the Roman culture either, but I'd have to go look that up. It, you know? it, it, oh. it was possible in Roman culture, but not in Jewish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, what strikes me then is, is the, the significance that it is granted. And I think it's an, a mistake to assume that the biblical message regarding sex is don't do it. It's bad. Mm-hmm. That is not the biblical message. It is celebrated uh, it, as, as something beautiful and, and a gift uh, that God has given us. Um, so it isn't, it isn't the ascetic bent that we find in the Bible that, you know, mm-hmm. if it feels good, it's wrong, uh, that you should, it should be something that you feel shame about or anything like that. Um, it's just, it is something so important and uh, so profoundly impactful on human lives. And I think there is something spiritual about sex. Uh, this binding together that is involved in sex, I think, is more than physical. There's something spiritual that goes on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the beauty that from this union can come new life. I mean, all of that uh, makes it, I think, sacred and tremendously important. So uh, there's so much warning and and, uh, so many guidelines given because there are so many ways to uh, make use of it uh, in ways that are not good, that that are damaging rather than helpful. Yeah. You know, I think too, um, when, when people are properly uh, enjoying sex together inside marriage, there's a vulnerability that comes to that and openness that comes to that, uh, that you're able to share yourself with someone in a way that you don't with anyone else in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I bring that up because, um, you know, there are 
unhealthy, um, you know, there are unhealthy ways that people have sex even inside marriage. And uh, we've talked about that in a previous, um, you know, podcast when we were doing our series on purity culture. Uh, but if, you know, uh, if you want to go back and listen to that, you can, or you can check out the book, The Great Sex Rescue, uh, which talks about, you know, how sex should be properly done in marriage, uh, right. which is not simply, you know, um, the woman has to have it every time the man says so, because he's the man or whatever else, you know, uh, yeah. and it's about this mutuality of coming together um, mm-hmm. in equality with one another and being open and vulnerable and together and, and really just connecting uh, in, in every sense of the term, uh, you yeah. know, uh, physically and spiritually and emotionally and, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, and, you know, the early in the church history uh, around, well, I say early, around the 400s AD. So within a, within a couple hundred years, you know, essentially of, of, uh, of the church being established uh, in the, in the you know, New Testament era, um, what we find is people like St. Augustine saying, oh, Song of Songs, that's really just a metaphor for Christ in the church. Yeah. Uh, and, and you look at the way that they had uh, philosophies about sexuality, and they had a very negative yeah. view. Uh, Tertullian, yeah. one of the church fathers, you know, says essentially you should only have sexual relationships for the purpose of procreation. If that's not yeah. what you're doing, you're wrong. And you don't find that message anywhere in the Bible. Um, you Instead, you get Song of Songs, which is an entire book about uh, just the, the hard work that it takes to uh, develop and nourish an intimate relationship. Uh, so much so that at the end of the book, there's still a question, you know, is our relationship going to be okay? And that's how the book yeah. ends. And I think it ends that way to remind people that you never get to this happily ever after. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's that you continually work towards togetherness throughout your entire marriage. Yeah. 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 Um, so um, with regard to our society today, uh, one of the things that I have heard increasingly is that um, the Bible doesn't really teach sex should be reserved for marriage, but rather that um, uh, it should just be based on mutual consent. Um, it's, it's an unfortunate teaching uh, because it, for one, doesn't really have any scriptural basis. Um, I, I think that, uh, but I think that it's uh, presented as an attempt to um, you know, maybe somewhat combat some poor teachings about sexuality that people have heard from the church. But I yeah. think instead of finding good middle ground, it sort of swings to the other end. So right. you have, you know, the view of sex shouldn't be for pleasure or for joy. And then you have, no, you shouldn't even, re- you know, reserve sex for marriage. And then, you know, somewhere in the middle is, well, you know, sex is reserved for marriage, but it's more than just for procreation. It's for developing right. your relationship with one another. And um, uh, what are some of your thoughts, though, on just some of the teachings or, you know, what have you seen uh, in the church uh, with regard to maybe more lackadaisical views uh, pushing towards towards just mutual consent? Yeah, I think I've seen in my lifetime a real shift um, in many uh, Christians and their perspective on these issues. Um, and I do think there's been, uh, well, there's been a shift in society as a whole, I think, uh, and that, it, that accounts for, you know, its, its effect on the church. 
Um, I do think the church hasn't been the one kind of leading the charge in these uh, changes, uh, but they have been kind of uh, dragged along. Um, and I think it's unfortunate uh, that I think for a lot of people, uh, the concern has been how do we accommodate our culture's preferences so that we don't cause offense. Um, and uh, I think I think we lose sight of the whole idea of the gospel to begin with when that's our approach. Uh, the gospel begins with the horrible news that we are desperately wicked and need saving. Um, we, we cannot offer any help to the world or to ourselves uh, unless we're willing to to recognize that and surrender to Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord. In fact, he cannot save unless he is Lord, because we have to let him take charge. We've been wrecking our lives, and he's the one that, that can, can move it in a, a, in a different direction. Uh, I know you sent me some notes on, on some of the stuff you talked about in your last podcast and I was reading through these passages, looking at Leviticus 18, and really in the whole Bible, if you're going to look for a passage that really goes into detail about what you should and shouldn't do in terms of sexuality, Leviticus 18 is really the passage. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think most of the New Testament refers to it obliquely by simply using terms like sexual immorality, and they assume that you're going to go to Leviticus 18 to figure out exactly yeah. what we're talking about. They don't they don't often get into the level, well, nobody anywhere in the Bible goes into the level of detail that Leviticus 18 does. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, Paul will, will add some other details, not yeah. just sexual immorality, but, but and some even other when Paul specifics. does, he tends to use specific words and quotes, loose quotes from Leviticus 18, in addition to whatever he's adding. Right. But so, what, what strikes me about Leviticus 18 is the kind of the point of the whole thing. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, this is what God says. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you live. That's where they come from. Mm -hmm. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. So God lets them know, okay, this is the way people went about sexuality in Egypt. This is how they're going to be going about it in Canaan. These are commonly accepted cultural ways in which people view uh, the practice of human sexuality, but you need to present to the world an alternative. You mm -hmm. need to present to the world a different kind of sexuality. And then he gets into, you know, the biggest section, verses 6 through 18, are, are prohibitions against approaching a close relatives sexually incest. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it goes into a lot of details. I mean, many of them uh, we would uh, assume even in our culture today uh, as, you know, off limits. Inappropriate. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, but, and perhaps some of the ways in which it extends it, that our culture might not quite uh, get uh, agree is it extends it to marital ties that put people into these connections, which, you know, like you're, you're not supposed to have sex with your aunt or uncle, but neither should you with their spouse, even if they're not blood connected to you. 
right. that relationship puts them in the same category. So there, there are a few of those in that. Uh, and I really think the next section is kind of a shotgun that just shotgun approach that just hits a bunch of different things in terms of sexuality. The first is probably the oddest. Uh, don't have sex with a menstruating woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, to understand that, we have to understand uh, the symbolism that the law attaches to blood. Right. Uh, and it, it goes into the whole sacrificial system. And blood is the ultimate symbol of life. Mm-hmm. And as such, it is to be reserved for God alone. We humans are not to, to eat it. We're not to mess with it. We're to reserve it for God. And I think that is... Yet one more illustration within sexuality of the fact that that life is to be treated as sacred and belonging to God. That's I think that's the logic behind that prohibition. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, adultery is also forbidden, uh, mm-hmm. and giving the fruit of sexual union, children, to the pagan god Molech. Uh, in order to gain some advantage by by sacrificing the child. Uh, and I, I can't help but think of, in our society, the closest parallel to that is uh, the way many people give up their children uh, through abortion to avoid negative, what they perceive to be negative consequences to themselves. And I see it as yeah. kind of the same underlying thought. You know, I, I give this up and my life will be better. Mm-hmm. Um, But then, uh, and that not only is described as defiling the one who does it, but also it, it, uh, it defiles the name of God, Mm -hmm. whom the Israelites carry. And then finally, uh, sex between men is forbidden. And then, uh, sex between humans and animals is forbidden. So it's kind of a, a broad spectrum, uh, these are a whole lot of other things. And some of them you read and think, wow, who, who wants to do that? But, but there are people out there doing these things. So it's in the, it's in the law spelled out specifically. Um, yeah. I hear rumors sometimes that there are, there's a movement in our country of people trying to get pedophilia legalized. And while that may be true, I, I think that the vast majority of people in our country are very much still adamantly opposed to it. Um, yeah. But um, but you, you know, you hear of these things and you go, well, even if our society as a whole isn't really for that, there's a group of sub, you know, subgroup yeah. in our society that is. And yeah. I think the same goes with, with animals and, you know, bestiality and all that. Yeah. Um, and something else that I think is, um, you know, interesting here is that while it does sort of relate some of this to worship with the idea of the child sacrifice, uh-huh. um, you know, it, it sort of makes me draw parallels to just the value of children uh, mm. in, in scripture and in, uh, especially in the ministry of Christ. But uh, in the ancient world, children weren't really very valued at all. Right. And yeah. um, uh, in our world today, though, we still have uh, in America, people being put into, you know, um, child uh, child labor type issue uh, situations. Uh, we also have, you know, sex trafficking situations a lot of yeah. times with teenagers. Yeah. And uh, so obviously they wouldn't necessarily be like, you know, children, but, um, uh, but you know, they're still not what we in our society would consider adults. 
And, um, and, and you've got a lot of things there that I think, you know, as a society are a, a big problem. And, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, this big shift you've seen in our culture. I, I think that people oftentimes do not realize how much more we are affected by our culture than how we affect our culture. In other words, um, you know, even if Christians are supposed to be set apart and do things differently, which you could honestly argue for many religious groups, um, you know, there are religious laws regarding sexuality and marriage Mm -hmm. and other things for, you know, Judaism, for um, Buddhism, for uh, Hinduism, for um, Islam and for Christianity. I mean, so, you know, but um, all of all of these different religious groups of people, um, you know, we're all affected by the society and culture we live in more than we as individuals affect society and and the shift in society. And so um, instead of sort of just sort of gravitating to, well, this is just kind of the way things are going. uh, You know, I feel like we need to say, look, if, if you claim to follow Christ, you know, obviously nobody's perfect. And, you know, people have made choices in the past or whatever that in no way affect their value or, uh, intrinsic value as a human being or anything else, but you should stop continuing to make those choices. Um, if you were to submit yourself under the authority of Christ. And so like you, I agree that sex is meant to be reserved for marriage. Um, and you know, if, if someone has a child outside of marriage, I think that in no way, uh, depletes or, 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 um, you know, lessens the value of not only the person or the couple who are having the child outside of marriage, but it also in no way uh, depletes the value of the child even mm-hmm. more into that situation. Um, yes. And, and so uh, I, I think it's important to remember that, but at the same time, uh, we shouldn't as Christians be characterized just by simply doing things the way those outside the church do. Right. Right. And I, I think this is, I think there's an underlying assumption, just given the the last maybe hundred years of history, because as a country, we've kind of come out of a, a you know, in, in the wake of great revivals and, and uh, a much larger uh, impact of the Christian faith on the way our nation kind of thinks of things. That has deteriorated over the past hundred years, I would say. Mm-hmm. So the assumption kind of, I think, uh, unconsciously for a lot of people is that the further back in time you go, the more pious people were. And, uh, you know, that the kind of uh, sexuality we're seeing in the world today is kind of a, a, a new development. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's absolutely mistaken. In fact, we we have probably in our country come back around to an approach to sexuality that's a lot more like it was for Christians in the first century than maybe a hundred years ago here in this country. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think we need to understand that the biblical teaching regarding sexuality and marriage has always run counter to culture. Mm-hmm. It was that way with Egypt. It was that way with Canaan. It was that way with the Greco-Roman world. And it's that way today. It, 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 it can't stop being that way. 
And there was never any point in history where the biblical instruction regarding these things matched what was going on in human culture. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem of the fall. That's the problem of sin. We have always been um, twisting or distorting the good things that God has given us and and abusing them in ways that that bring negative effects. Uh, And the Bible has always been a voice calling us in a very different direction. I will say, though, uh, now that we have the completed picture, we don't have just the old covenant, but the uh, the end goal of the old covenant, which was to bring us to Christ and the new covenant, uh, we see that the way God can resolve our issues is through uh, a radical transformation. We recognize our problem, we recognize our inability to fix it, and we turn to Christ in faith and surrender. And he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit and uh, begins the process of uh, transformation in us, uh, begins to change us from the inside out. Mm -hmm. That's the way you fix it. So I'm not sympathetic to Christians who want to impose a Christian morality on people who aren't in Christ, because it's impossible. Uh, Christ has to reorient our hearts in such a way that we can live differently than we did before. But to expect the world around us to adopt that, uh, to adopt a Christian lifestyle without Christ is is, uh, to expect the impossible. Yeah, and I tell it, my and students. It misrepresents the faith. It makes people assume that the faith is ultimately a, a moral code, which is it isn't. Mm-hmm. The moral, the changed morality is the outcome of a changed heart. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. Yeah, I, I tell my students a lot of times, you know, you can't expect people without the Holy Spirit to live with the convictions of the Holy Spirit. Exactly. And um, what I tell my children is you're not responsible for their actions. You're responsible for your actions and you're right. responsible for how you respond to others and how you treat others. Uh, ultimately your responsibility ends with you. <laughs> like you yeah. can't make someone else be a certain way. And um, you know, as Christians um, I think it's wrong when we try to force our beliefs on the rest of society, yeah. but we have a responsibility to live according to our beliefs Uh, and society should be able to look at us and go, oh, they might be a Christian because of how they're behaving themselves, how they're acting, right? Um, You mentioned mentioned something else a second ago. I'm trying to think of what it was. Uh, It's left my mind, but uh, it was good. I liked what you said. I was going to follow up with something else on it, but um, uh, anyway, it doesn't really matter. What you said was good. So, um, you know, uh, as far as um, scriptural teachings, uh, you know, I, I clearly, I, I think you and I both agree that monogamy is the uh, biblical teaching. Um, it's not the only form of marriage you see in scripture. Uh, and as such, you know, I think, you know, if, if someone who moved over here to the United States from another country and he brought his three wives with him, and once over here, he became a Christian, uh, I would not say to him, you need to divorce two of these wives because, right. you know, uh, because yeah, I think yeah. the, the scriptural teaching is also that 
God doesn't really like divorce either. And right. uh, if you've already set up this family structure and established that, you keep that. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, but as Christians, we don't go, okay, now I'm a Christian. I'm going to go ahead and enter into polygamy um, because that is, uh, you know, something I think scripture speaks against. Um, I think another issue here, uh, of course, regarding sexuality is what do you do with the issue of uh, same-sex monogamy? And uh, so in the last year, I think I have known, um, I want to say about 10 couples who are Christians who have entered into same-sex monogamy over the last year. Um, there's a group of uh, people saying, uh, you know, hey, it's okay for, for these couples to, to do this biblically. Um, and then there's um, a, a number, I mean, I know probably another 15 uh, Christians who uh, are inclined toward same-sex attraction who believe that they're called a celibacy and who, who would argue, um, I think, argue that um, Christians inclined toward same-sex attraction are all called toward celibacy. Um, Francis Chan has talked about that in some of his uh, sermons and videos, and I think has, has, has done a good job with that. If, you know, many people know he is in, well, I don't know if he is now, but he was in San Francisco, uh, which is um, certainly, uh, you know, a big issue uh, in, in the community there. Uh, yeah. But um, my position on this has been uh, along the lines of those who remain celibate. Um, I, I think that if I was looking at the writings of uh, the New Testament authors, any of them, uh, they still fit into the understandings of how the uh, Old Testament era looked at the issue. And even though in both Roman culture and Jewish culture, same-sex marriage was not allowed, uh, even if it had been allowed in Roman culture in, in the first century, I don't think that based on the writings of the New Testament, any of the New Testament authors would have gravitated towards that or agreed with that. Um, yeah. I think that um, it's not necessarily a salvific issue, um, but I do think it uh, to at least some degree uh, is a, um, is just a sort of a scriptural authoritative type issue. You know, how, how much do you want to, as a Christian, follow what God tells us in his word about, you know, different, um, you know, ways that Christians should be characterized in the way that they live. And so um, I, I think someone inclined toward same-sex attraction, uh, that in no way negates them from being able to accept Christ, it doesn't negate them from being able to do ministry, it doesn't negate them from being able to um, be used to spread, you know, uh, you know, share God's kingdom or, or whatever else, right? Yeah. Um, but, um, but the scriptural teaching on marriage does seem to be between one man and one woman. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think if our culture says we're going to allow same-sex marriage, um, and someone goes to the justice of the peace and, and does that, I, I think that's, you know, within their right to do so. Um, but, uh, I don't, I don't think that we should say, you know, Christian pastors or Muslim pastors or, uh, well, imams, right? But uh, uh, or uh, you know, Jewish rabbis or anyone else should be required to perform these ceremonies, um, mm -hmm. just because um, typically people look towards religious leaders to perform right. wedding ceremonies. Um, and uh, you know, all that being said, um, I, I don't think Christians should necessarily say, 
okay, we're just so against this in our culture that we don't want it to happen for anybody. Uh, but again, going back to um, the idea of, you know, as Christians, what does, what does scripture teach us and how should we live within society, within culture? And, uh, you know, I think for many Christians, the conviction is still, uh, still very much that marriage is between one man and one woman. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for denominations that have chosen different things or for denominations that are embroiled in uh, battles against different ideals, uh, you know, that's one thing. Uh, you and I are both Baptist. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention has been uh, abundantly clear that we still believe in um, monogamous heterosexual marriages. And, um, uh, you know, from everything I look at in scripture, that just seems to be the, the way that uh, it is presented. There doesn't really seem to be room for uh, other interpretations there. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, 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 people do um, kind of uh, exegetical gymnastics to try to, to get around some of these passages. Um, and I don't see this like the issue of women in ministry, where there are some passages that seem to exclude them. Um, because in that case, uh, the problem, and I changed my position in that years ago, because the Bible made me, I, I, I felt like I was compelled by I felt like the whole Bible constantly was being subversive of patriarchy. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't, it's like the Old Testament authors couldn't help themselves. They keep mentioning all these examples of women doing things they're not supposed to be doing. And they're, they're right. presented positively as examples of, of what God has accomplished through them, you know? So yeah. um, to then turn around and say, but God doesn't want women doing these things uh, seemed to me, uh, contradictory. And, and that led me yeah. to dig deeper and reevaluate how I was understanding Paul. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, the issue was the wording of, uh, you know, in, in Greek, there's no distinct word for wife. It's woman is the only word they have. Woman can mean wife or woman, depending on context. And I think uh, when you start flipping that in the passages and say, okay, what if here we're talking about husbands and wives, not the gender, the feminine gender, and mm -hmm. how wives and husbands treat each other within the context of the congregation, then it, it becomes a different issue. But I don't, I don't see any way to do that with the passages that, that deal with this. Uh, Romans 1 is probably the strongest, mm -hmm. where Paul's laying out his, this is the gospel I preach, right? And it starts with the bad news that we are all under God's wrath. And he, he mm -hmm. talks about the non-Jew first, and then he talks about the Jew, how they're all under God's wrath. That's the necessary first step in the gospel. Until we know we're in trouble, we don't know we need a savior. Um, and when he's describing God's wrath poured out against those who don't have access to the Bible or are unaware of it, uh, he begins with general revelation. God has made himself known in the things that he's created. And the duty of humankind is to respond to him in worship. But instead, humans have chosen to worship things of the creation, mm -hmm. whether human beings or animals, and create images to represent these things. But basically, the object of our devotion has become not God, but the things he has created. 
Right. And Paul says that God has responded to this by pouring out his wrath against us. And what he did was actually just let us do what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to the filth of dishonoring their bodies among themselves in chapter one, verse 24. Mm -hmm. And uh, he goes on, God delivered them over to dishonorable passions for their females changed the natural usage to one contrary to nature. Likewise, the males also leaving behind the natural usage with females were consumed with their desire for one another. Males accomplishing the shameless act with males and receiving in themselves the necessary reward for their delusion. That's verses 26 and 27. So I don't see any way to get around both male and female homosexual activity here being described as against nature, contrary to natural usage, mm -hmm. um, and even uh, shameful. Mm -hmm. um, and so, in this passage, you know, with its sort of tie into worship, uh, you know, we know in the first century, there were a lot of cults that were doing uh, prostitution in worship, mm -hmm. as well as uh, having orgies as part of the temple practices and things of that nature. Uh, so not only is this, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I understand, you know, some people said, well, this isn't really talking about monogamous same-sex relationships. And, and to a point that may be the case, but to another point, um, it, it still speaks to this idea that this is not the way God originally ordered and intended things. Right. To be. And I do think that that is a bit of a stretch, though, to assume from what Paul is saying here that he's addressing cultic sex mm -hmm. exclusively. Oh, sure. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. This, is, this is part of cultic sex. But when he talks, of, and, and some say, no, he's describing here the way in Roman culture, uh, a slave owner could rape uh, a boy slave. Mm -hmm. And that was viewed as acceptable. Well, he describes it here as men who are consumed with their desire for one another. This is consensual. This is not right. rape. Right. Um, and, and, uh, he, he's, and, and I think he, we need to get past the fact that God is, Paul describes this as God has poured out his wrath on us by letting us pursue these things. And the reason I, I think we often misunderstand that Paul presents the wrath of God, not as vindictive, not as punitive, but as part of his redemption plan. In other words, God lets us do what we want to do so that we can taste for ourselves that it doesn't provide the, the good that we thought it would. Yeah. That, so that we can come to recognize in ourselves that this is not the good we thought it was. And, and having come to that experience, um, we are one step closer to turning to Christ for rescue. I mean, the whole point of God's wrath is to, um, to provide us an opportunity to awaken from our, our blindness and our misunderstanding so that we can be rescued. It's not just, mm -hmm. I'm upset and I want to make you suffer. Right. Um, yeah. People talk so much about how uh, the negative psychological uh, experiences of people who are involved in, in same-sex marriage or in same-sex uh, unions and, mm -hmm. and the practice of it and all that. And I think it's a mistake to assume that all of the negativity there 
is being uh, dumped on people from without. Correct. That all of the negative uh, things psychologically and spiritually associated with this come from without and are kind of an oppressive imposition from without. Uh, and I, I won't deny there is some of that. Some Christians are absolutely mistaken in their approach to teaching. And rather than uh, try to uh, present the love of God as the alternative, uh, they present the wrath of God as the hatred of God. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, misrepresent that. Uh, but the whole point of God in this is to draw us out of it. And, and I think uh, a lot of the negative psychological and spiritual things that accompany uh, practicing these things are never going to go away. Even if we reach the point where all society applauds it and everybody, uh, I mean, we are at a point where some people are vehemently uh, pro-affirmation of these things. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't see that the negative psychological baggage has disappeared. Yeah. It hasn't really diminished much at all, to be completely yeah. honest. You know, I mean, uh, for, you know, if you look at the way society dealt with homosexuality in 1982 with the AIDS epidemic and other things mm-hmm. versus how society looks at homosexuality today, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's a 180 and, you know, then some, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you still see so many of the same, uh, the same issues. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. You know, God allows people to um, pursue the things they think are best for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does so, so they will understand that, you know, God's ways are, are not our ways. Right. And, you know, yeah. we, we come to God for rest. We don't yeah. find all the solutions in and of ourselves. So yeah. Well, Randall, I think this has been a, hopefully a, a good informative topic for, for a lot of folks today and helpful for some people. And I hope I, so. You know, thank you for being here. Um, of we course. will see you guys again next time on the faith and culture now podcast, as we continue uh, in this particular study. So uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Okay.